Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. To the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and $15,000 a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. First cut. Golly. Welcome to the First Cut Podcast. I'm Rick Gaiman, and this is a very special bonus episode where we are going to deep dive that pesky 2021 Ryder Cup. More on that in just one second. Kyle Porter joins me as usual. KP, welcome in. Yeah, do we call it the 20? 20- I'm so confused on this. Do we call it the 2021 Ryder Cup or the 2020 Ryder Cup? Uh, well, let's just bring in Shane Ryan, author of The Cup They Couldn't Lose. Shane, we'll just, uh, one, good to have you too. We will just defer to you on whatever year we want to call this thing. You're the expert here. I mean, yeah, there's two There's two kinds of people, right? There's the people who are like, the reality is it was held in the year 2021. <laughs> then there's the people who want to go with some corporation's branding and call it the 2020 Ryder Cup. So the way cooler choice is the 2021 Ryder Cup. And Wikipedia says 2021, which... For me, they're the highest source in the land on every matter. This now, is like the Open Championship against the British Open. It's like the new. It's like the hipster version of that. But it would be like if the British Open was actually in Egypt, and they <laughs> and they and they wanted you to call it the British Open. Like the, the Ryder Cup was in 2021. <laughs> uh, Tokyo, they just stuck with 2020 for the Olympics, right? Like they yeah. didn't care. They're like, we are we are just plowing through with 2020. We will yeah, I, yeah, I think with them, they're still going to stay on four-year schedules, so maybe that makes like some sense. But the Ryder Cup is actually changing, right? I mean, they're actually on odd years again. I, whatever, let them do what they want. It's kind of sick. My my wife, I went to um, play the PGA Championship Media Day at Bethpage back in what was that, 2019, and they were giving out 2024 Ryder Cup gear because the 2024 Ryder Cup was at Bethpage. Well, so my wife. I gave her some of the stuff. She wears this 2024 Beth page Ryder cup hat. There's probably like, you know, that's like going to be one of 300 or something. I mean, there, there can't be that many of those that were printed. I would pay $10,000 to your family (laughs) for for that hat. You should accept that offer Kyle (laughs) right now, right now, but you have to say yes. Now I'm in. Um, I, okay, we've spent three minutes on the Ryder Cup. Shane, the next 27 is about apocalypse uh, sports trivia. That's what, that's what I want to talk about for the next 20. <laughs> you are a subscriber. You are I, near and dear to my heart. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I, um, yeah. thanks for joining this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to talk about it for hours if need be. When I get the email every night 
we could be in the middle of dinner. We could be, my wife could be telling me something critically important. I'm like, I'm like, hold, hold please. I've got five <laughs> trivia questions that I need to think about and stir over for the next, you know, 24 hours. This is the most. <laughs> what do you, is there like a rank? Like, are you ranked? Like, is there a hierarchy? Oh, my friend, this is the like, it, there's amazing. It's there's divisions. So I don't, I'm, I'm not in a very high division. I'm like a 45%. Correct. You're like a corn fairy guy. You're like a, you might be like a PGA tour yeah. Latino America guy. Yeah. So Shane, I, I always think like, it's, I, I got to just get my stuff up. I got to get, I got to get my hockey knowledge up. That way I can work up the divisions. I can get myself into the mix. I was on uh, I was talking with somebody else about this and they were in the same boat as you. And they're like, how am I ever going to learn about hockey when I don't know? And I was like, well, th there was, we have these championships on zoom, Kyle, at the end uh, of every, we call it a fortnight at the end of every season. And this one guy came on, who's phenomenal. Uh, he's one of the best players. And he said, you know, I think my chances are really good. I've been, I've been studying my flashcards and I've been really like grinding. And he was totally serious. And he's a great guy. He's a basketball writer. And uh, yeah, like, so there are people, believe it or not, Rick, who genuinely see like, oh gosh, I'm only 50% at hockey time to study. Uh, so yeah. But what's great about it, Kyle, is that uh, it's, there's a promotion relegation system. So Rick doesn't have to play against either people or who are insanely good or people who are like really bad or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you're kind of sorted into playing uh, your people that are at your skill level. I like that. It's a, yeah. it's a built in handicapping system. I'll, I'll try exactly. to work. I'll try to work this back towards golf because I get so excited every time there's a golf question and I'm like, all right, I'm in baby. Let's go. I've got one right today and we'll see how the rest go, but yeah. we should, let's, let's talk about the book. Uh, Shane Ryan. Apocalypsetrivia.com. If anybody wants to join. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my, my highest. It's, it's the best. Yeah. The cup they couldn't lose. Uh, wow. Two, I'm sitting with two authors. I'm so, I'm so like, you know, I'm so jealous of you guys, what you're able to accomplish here, but Shane, why, why this book? Why right now? And kind of, I mean, I, I can't even imagine the huge mountain you have to climb to write a book. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, I guess one of those things where do you like big projects that involve research or not? Right. And if you do, I, you know, I've always thought it was really fun and to chip away at it. And I guess there are certain things I can do. Like I can write really fast. Um, you know, whether you think I write well, is a different matter, but I know I can write fast. Uh, and I had to this time, I had to write this book in a month once the Ryder cup was over. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy the long process, uh, of writing books but as to why the Ryder Cup, you know, it's just really always been this tournament that even before I was a really big golf fan, I didn't grow up playing golf. Uh, the Ryder Cup was something I always watched. It had a lot of romance for me. And, uh, you know, it just I've loved it from day one. And it just so happened that the first ever tournament I covered uh, was the 2012. Did I say 2020, 2012, the 2012 Ryder Cup in Medina outside Chicago, which was this crazy, crazy one where. You guys know the uh, the U.S. took a huge lead and then the Europeans came back and won on Sunday. And that was such a profound – it was the best sporting event I've probably ever been to live. And yeah. uh, it, it just cemented the idea that I love this so much. I want to write a book about it. And then, uh, you know, John Feinstein wrote a book about the 2016 Ryder Cup, and I knew that, so I wasn't going to do that one. wasn't going to do one that was in Europe because that would be make everything much harder. But, yeah, I kind of targeted this Whistling Straits one as if it was possible, I would like to like to really dig into it. Yeah, the, the 2012 was the last big golf tournament I didn't cover. That was very much a marker for me of, like, remembering watching it before being in this business. And I view it so 
so differently now. And I have like, I think it's very romantic as well. I, I am interested one, this is kind of inside baseball, but I had, uh, I think I had night terrors. I might've had a panic attack. Uh, many, many things I felt after hearing that you lost like the first four chapters of this book to, uh, <laughs> to word processor. Oh, what not know can that. you tell me about what happened there? I, I, I yeah. still like, get anxiety thinking about that. It was a really, it was a turning point in my life, I think. Um, as, it, as it should be. Yeah, no. So this was a thing where, you know, I did a lot of research and a lot of interviews and I, you were able to do some groundwork, but obviously you can't write this story before the Ryder Cup happens because you can end up sort of writing the wrong thing. Like everything I thought was going to happen in Whistling Straits did, but if it didn't, I wasn't going to write, you know, 200 pages of a 300 page book and go, oh crap, Europe won. Now I have to redo everything. <laughs> uh, so what that meant was I had like a month to write the Ryder Cup book um, once it was over. And it was, as you imagine, highly stressful. I rented an office uh, downtown in, in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. And there was one day, luckily, I, I when I write, I do different chapters and different Word documents. So it wasn't as bad as losing four chapters. But everything was a grind and a rush. And I wrote this 6,000-word chapter on Steve Stricker, which was like, you know, one of the really important chapters. It was, I had gone to Wisconsin to meet his family. I had met like all his like in-laws and everything like that. Basically the whole story of where he comes from and what he's like. I write 6,000 words and then Microsoft Word on the screen, it just all turned to stars, to asterisks on me. And in a panic, I was like, you need to save. And I went and saved it, which was the worst thing I could have done because you're just saving asterisks at that point. And I was like, oh boy, that's that was stupid. And so I compounded something. I think it may have been lost anyway, but maybe there was like an auto save I could have gotten. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the whole thing turns to stars. I'd never seen that before. I'd had this computer for like 12 years or something, like a crazy long time. Uh, Googled it and saw that it is some kind of glitch and that there's basically no recovery from it. And I spent, you know, 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get it back. I couldn't. And when I say it was a turning point in my life, it was very much a thing of, all this stress was already on me and this was so devastating that it was like, if you spend even a minute sort of even in your head whining about it or, or bemoaning the fate of the universe, you're never going to come back from this. Like this yeah. is you're, you're down for the count. And so it was kind of thing where I was like, you must immediately start writing this chapter right now again and finish by the end of the day. And, and that's it. And you go on from there because otherwise like it'll just devastate you into inaction basically. See, okay. Uh, so the only comp that I have for that is I've recorded, you know, YouTube videos. And then when I press stop, the file gets corrupt. And, it, Ugh, it, yeah, it, yeah. and like, it happens like once every two years. Did you try to rewrite it word for word what you originally had? Or did you just say, okay, I'm just going to start over and see where this takes me? Because I will try to say the same exact words in the same exact order that I had just done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing about it, it's such a good question because the funny thing about it is you really can't unless you, may, I guess, have a photographic memory. So I just rewrote the chapter and obviously it hit a lot of the same beats, but it was different and the funny thing was, I thought it was much better the second time around. Like I benefited from having written it and then rewritten it. And it was like, in a theoretical world, it might be good to do that with all of my writing. I will absolutely never do it. Never, like never in a million years will I make that my practice where like I write it once, delete the entire thing and then write it again. But yeah, it was like, uh, it was kind of funny in that I was like, wow, not only does this go quicker, but I'm picking up on things I missed the first time around and it flows better. And so it's kind of weird that way. See, I'm so prideful that I think the first thing I wrote, like, pff, 
I can't, you know, not only can I not top that, nobody else can top that either. So that's that's a great way to live. Uh, Shane, I'm curious about this. <laughs> you, and, you and I are, well, all of us, but especially you and I are super passionate about the Ryder Cup. Um, it, it's something, I think it's the rare sports event or, or sports entity that the participants are at times just as passionate as as the fans are. I think oftentimes like fans, NBA fans are more passionate than like an average player for the Cleveland Cavaliers or the, you know, Golden State Warriors. But this is the rare thing where everybody involved seemed really, really passionate. Who was the person that you talked to in your interview process or journey that you're like, man, this person is even more excited about the Ryder Cup or even more passionate than I am. And I just gain a lot of energy from talking to them about this event. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think what you said is spot on. And like the stuff you wrote about Rory in particular was so good uh, after when he cried on on Sunday. Um, there was a lot of good writing about that, but I think yours was the best. And it, it just, the passion you see reflected in the players heightens the passion, especially like of journalists and fans. I think for me though, uh, the people I spoke with that gave me the most energy on it were some of the past captains or even peripheral people who are, uh, aligned in some way with the Ryder Cup, who just love it so much the way we yeah. do. So to give you like one name, Paul McGinley was somebody where I spoke for three hours and I don't think anybody, he was the captain for those who don't know and Glenn Eagles and uh, for the European team, probably in my opinion, maybe the best captain or certainly one of the best captains that's ever been in terms of the depth about which he thinks of these things and had amazing stories from when he played about captains like Sam Torrance who captained him and, um, it was just awesome. And, and it really provided a level of depth. I didn't get then like someone from another example, like this guy, Jason Aquino, uh, he is the head of scouts consulting, which is the stats and analytics firm that team USA uses to try to give themselves an advantage. And, you know, this is somebody who, when he was a kid would, would videotape on VHS teams, all the Ryder cups, and then the press conferences on the golf channel. And he would like watch them until the tapes were destroyed to the point that as an adult, it was still such a consuming obsession that when he became like a military analyst for the Pentagon, he had to destroy the tapes because it was taking too much of his time. (laughs) Uh, And so he eventually turned that into like, this is part of what he does for a career now. Yeah. And talking to him is like, oh my God, like so illuminating. This guy can give you an example from Valderrama of a match with like, you know, Per Ulrich Johansson or whoever it is like on like some 17th hole and something the captain did to give them an advantage. It's, it just encyclopedic and guys like that are like, they almost validate in a weird way how cool this event is and how rewarding it is to sort of dig in uh, both on a modern and historical level. Yeah. It's, it's always exciting uh, to hear stories like that from people, right. Who just, it's almost in, in their DNA. And a lot of times that get, does get attributed to the captains, obviously uh, Steve Stricker, Shane, huge part of kind of the story that was the 2021 Ryder Cup, not only being in Wisconsin, but also, you know, you're not just the captain for that week, right? You know well in advance you are trying to learn from potentially pr- previous mistakes that other captains have made or build on team chemistry. It, it, it's it's a long process to go from everything from Stricker gets named captain to Sunday at the Ryder Cup. It totally is. And, you know, speaking of Jason Aquino, one concept that he introduced me to is this idea of institutional memory, which sounds complicated, but basically it just means learning from the past and learning both from your successes and your failures. And it's such a critical part of the Ryder Cup. It's why Europe won 
starting in the 80s for 30 years, the majority of the time, because they had, you know, a template or whatever you want to call it, they had something to build on where it wasn't just a new captain coming in and, and trying to figure everything out by himself. It was a support system that goes back in some cases, decades eventually. And so all the knowledge you've gained, everything that didn't work, everything that did work, it is all there. And then you build on it some more. And the U.S. didn't do that forever until the humiliation at Glen Eagles. Uh, and then they you know, had this task force and they've really done a, a really amazing job of turning things around. And Stricker, yeah, Stricker was a very details oriented guy. He pushed a ton of the right buttons. He added his own touch to the Ryder Cup. But he's also building on now like six years of uh I don't know if I'll say a successful legacy, at least half successful, but at least six years of going, okay, this is now a comprehensive thing that we're going to learn from. It is no longer a series of vacillating from one year to the next with wildly different philosophies. There's a lot of, I feel like I learned a lot in this book. Um, and, and I thought the way you ended it was very um, poignant and again, almost like romantic. I thought the the very last part of it was kind of it, it was for people that haven't read it yet. It was a throwback to like one of the first Ryder Cups and and um, players from Europe coming over to America and how that influenced even the twenty twenty one Ryder Cup and just like the through line from nineteen twenty seven until almost a hundred years later. And I thought that was interesting. And I, I actually have an answer to this question that I'm about to ask, and I'll give my answer in a second. But I'm curious about. What is the most in doing all this research and going back almost a hundred years and bringing it to the present? What's the most surprising thing that you learned in that research process, from reading or talking to people or whatever? What what stood out to you as the most surprising thing? Yeah, I think in terms of what I knew when I started it in 2019, uh, it, it goes just to what you were saying. The surprising thing is how close the Ryder Cup was to death. On multiple occasions, um, the story you just referenced after World War II, uh, you know, U Europe and England, they're wastelands, basically. They're not thinking about the Ryder Cup. Uh, it's been gone for 10 years. And so we come to 1947 and this grocer, really like a, the guy who like owned the Piggly Wiggly in Portland, <laughs> Oregon. But like, I'm not, I'm not even joking. Like, I know. he's like, one of the, it's fun, it's so funny. He's like one of these guys, very much like Samuel Ryder, by the way, one of these guys who are just these businessmen who reach age 40, don't know anything about golf, take up the game because like a doctor told them to, and then just become like classically obsessed with it and have the money to be like, okay, I want to do this. I want to bring the U.S. Open to Portland. I want to do this. Yeah. And this guy got it in his head that he wanted to bring the Ryder Cup back. And, you know, they started talking to the PGA of America and they started talking to Europe and, you know, or to England at the time, the U.K. And they were like, there's absolutely no way. We have no money. We can't do this. It's not a priority. We're rebuilding our entire country, which has been bombed to death by the Germans for four years. And he said, this guy, I'm blanking on his name, which is so embarrassing. It was Jack something. But anyway, this, this guy said, forget it. I'm going to pay for everything. And he paid for them to travel on a, like a, the Queen Mary ocean liner. He met them in New York when they got over there, threw a huge party for them at this ballroom, went with them on a train back to Portland. And they did this Ryder Cup and the U.S. destroyed them. It was 11 to 1. And, you know, Ben Hogan didn't even play the last day there. It was just like an absolute destruction. But it kept it going. And it's yeah. like, that's the romantic part of it. It's so awesome that it kept it going. Well, U.S. kept winning. U.S. kept winning. Finally, in the late 70s, they expand to all of Europe. And then it reaches a point where you're starting to get into the TV age. It's more important that people, you need a lot more sponsorship money. It's trying to, you know, try to make money from TV 
And it got to a point where it was going to die again because of the lack of competition. Europe was never successful to the point that they had this guy who was like the executive secretary of the British PGA going all across England, Scotland, everywhere, trying to get any sponsor. At the last minute, he got something from a, a company called Bell's Scotch Whiskey, which apparently is really big over there. I'd never heard of it. But um, they sponsored them for two times and said, OK, this is we'll, we'll try it out. And so it was on Europe at that point to make this competitive. And they had to do it in such a crazy hurry for this yeah. event not to die and wither on the vine. And along comes Tony Jacklin, like this sort of like mythical creature from history who just turns it around overnight, just like they needed, makes it insanely competitive. And, you know, here we are 40, 45 years later, and it's the Ryder Cup, right? It's just like this huge event. And so that was... I think the the closeness to complete death was the thing that surprised me the most. I, I I agree with that, and I actually think it's the second one, the nineteen early nineteen eighties one, that surprised me more because I, I think in my head I just thought it the Ryder Cup is something that incrementally over time there was a linear uh, progression to it, but the reality is that it was kind of all over the place. Like it got good for, or it, it got, um, it got saved and then it went bad again. Then it got saved. I did laugh. There was a part from, I think it was 1991 when, uh, was it Dick Inberg, whoever was the head of, of Ebersol. Yeah. Yeah. was, Dick, was yeah. like, why do we have this event? And then after the, the, I think it was the 91 Ryder cup was like, I can't believe we get to have this. event. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the flip from, and it was like such a, uh, a flip of the, or a, yeah, flip of the switch from the late eighties to the early nineties of it became this massive thing. See, like your research shows that it wasn't overnight, but it seemed to the broader golf public that it was overnight. And that really stood out to me, I think, to to like the ushering in of the Ryder Cup to the modern era. Totally. And, uh, you know, it, it in terms of how long it should have taken to transform it, it is overnight. You know what I mean? It really does seem yeah. like yeah. Tony, Tony Jacklin takes over a few months before the 83 Ryder Cup after nothing but 50 years of embarrassment and then almost wins a few months later in Florida, then does win at the Belfry. And one of the really funny things you mentioned is by 85 or at the Belfry, when Europe won, their fans were cued into it. Their fans knew that this was competitive and they like, they really gave it to the Americans to the point that the Americans were complaining. They had never seen anything like this. Hal Sutton was like, does the British fan has you know lost the thread or whatever? Like, like everybody's really complaining about this. And they go back in 87, wanting to give them a taste of their own medicine to Jack Nicholas's course at the memorial. And America hasn't caught on. They don't understand what it is. And so Nicholas and all the others are trying to root them on and they're giving them American flags. And all these people are just like, oh, this is so cool to see all the Europeans and the Americans in one place. And it's great. Uh, and so they, you know, they won in 87 for the first time ever in America. But then you get to 91, as you mentioned, and it's like America finally catches on. And it's yeah. like they're calling the players hotels in the middle of the night to wake them up. I mean, it's just like a total harassment scene. And that's what we're used to now. I'm, I'm glad we've kind of gotten into the uh, competitiveness of the Ryder cup. And, and Shane, I wonder how important this cup being competitive is for the future, obviously coming off a 19 to nine drubbing. I think there is uh, a lot less optimism about the future of the European team. We've said on this podcast countless times, like, Hey, the president's cup might be more competitive uh, for the, for the near future than the Ryder cup will be. Are we past the days of needing this to be competitive because we're almost a hundred years in, or do you think we could find ourselves 
asking similar questions that were asked before about the need for this event if it does not remain competitive? It's it's such a good question. I, I think there's definitely a cushion there. Like there's definitely a little leeway, but there's no doubt that. Okay, so the part about America being like the dominant force to come, they still have to win in Europe before that yeah. happens. We ha they haven't won in Europe for thirty years, right? So until that happens, you you can't quite say that. I, I think we are heading in that direction personally, but can't prove it, right? I mean, you just can't prove it. The one thing you can say is that since. I'll put it at 2008. Since 2008, we are very much in the era of the home blowout, where we had that one exception in Medina, where it looked like it was going to be a home blowout, but then it wasn't. Every other time, the home team has won by five points, six points, ten points. You know, at whistling straights. Uh, for whatever reason, there's this like really massive advantage now for the home team, and part of it is like the fans getting into it. Part of it is how smart they've become about setting up the course and giving themselves little advantages with the use of all their stats and numbers people. Uh, so that that's its own problem, right? Even if it kept going back and forth, you know, there, there's going to be some of us who want to see it go back to the golden age of the nineties where, you know, there's, there's 14 and a half to 13 and a half Ryder cups where it's really close. So the answer to that, some people are talking like the PGA of America might, uh, or, you know, the, the two organizations might combine to have a neutral party set up the course to try to erode some of the advantages, little things like that. So, the short answer to your question, it's safe for now, but like you, these things, you can never get complacent, really. I think Justin Rose should be allowed to set up all the courses in the future. <laughs> how, yeah. Just however he wants it. After he complained about the Pro-Am setup at at, uh, at Hazeltine. Shane, your thesis in the book was one, I think part of the fun of the Ryder Cup is arguing about uh, why the U.S. has not been successful. That's We love to argue about why we're not the best at everything, uh, which yeah. is... <laughs> pretty hilarious but your thesis is essentially and correct me if i'm wrong that the management on the united states side has been inferior to the management it, you, you turn it into a management problem and you, you kind of argue if this was basketball you you say like hey even if you're the bulls and you have scotty pippen and michael jordan you can't just roll the balls out and expect to win you have to mm -hmm. you have to manage the talent in a way that's proper to, to to win the actual event and so i'm curious about all the people that you came into contact with on both sides both organizations and your answer here can be it can be a player it can be a, a captain it can be whatever you want who if they disappeared tomorrow like they just were never involved in the Ryder cup again would hurt each side like would it be the biggest blow to each side so that could be you could answer spieth for the u.s you could answer Paul sure. McGinley for the Europeans, whatever you think, some stats person, who is the biggest linchpin you would say in each uh, in each organization that kind of really holds the whole thing together? It's a great question. Um, it's, as you said, there are a lot of seductive theories as to why America lost for so long. I think, you know, I go into this in the book. I think it does come down to management. You're right about that. The interesting thing on the American side now is when you have a system what that means is that the system takes care of a lot of things. And so not only do they have a good captain system in place and a good captaincy succession plan and all that, they have a lot of young talent, right? I mean, like it's just, it's coinciding with a really golden age of, of American youth who really care about the Ryder cup and are really, really good and really tough. And so the, I think like the best possible answer for the Americans. And I think the true answer is you can remove any cog from that system and the system's going to be okay. 
right mm. now. Um, now, uh, that's a cop-out, I understand. So I'll answer your question with, I don't think you can pick any player. They're just too, de- they're too deep. They're too good. Yeah. There's, there's nobody you can remove where you'd go, oh, gosh, the Americans are dead now. There's a lot of them where, like, basically everyone where you're like, oh, that would, you know, Colin Morikawa, you know, DJ, Scheffler, Spieth, Thomas. Like, it would be a shame to lose any of them, right? But there's nobody that they couldn't recover from. On the captain side, you know, maybe it's Davis Love at this point. As yeah. crazy as that sounds, like he he's somebody I think who cares very deeply about the Ryder Cup and has for a long time and is very smart about it and is sort of the linchpin around which every everyone revolves at this point. Like he he holds everything together. He's an assistant everywhere. He helps everybody. He he's kind of the mind that's at the center of this. Yeah. Again, I think and I think I think love way more important than any player. But also, I, I still think the system would eventually be okay. But he's somebody I really admire. What he's done with the Ryder Cup and Presidents Cup, uh, European side. Yeah, maybe if you lose McGinley, it, it's funny because I think of the Europeans as on the downward slide. And mm-hmm. so I, I already kind of in my head, I'm already thinking they're, they're <sighs> a really tough spot. I actually think with them, I might single out a player and say like John Rahm is the lifeblood of this team. He's an incredibly strong personality. He's great under pressure. We saw what he did at Whistling Straits in a losing cause uh, for so long. Um, you know, he's the lifeblood of their team more than Rory, more than a lot of other guys. I think it would be devastating for the Europeans to lose someone like John Rahm. I'm glad you mentioned John Rahm because that's going to put a perfect little bow on this episode. But I just got a text from Jacob. He said he he forgot to press record. We have to start over now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, please tell me that's not true. <laughs> it all it all turned to asterisks. Yeah, that was, that was I did not see that coming. That was good, right? Uh, well done. Well done. We are going to meld worlds. Okay, our worlds are going to collide because Kyle, I want to put you on the spot, Shane. If you don't know. Uh, the reason that Kyle has that little trophy emoji next to his name is because he is oh. our he is our trivia champion. Uh, he has he wow. has earned that crown over multiple sessions. He's very very proud of it, aren't you, Kyle? <laughs> well, <laughs> I am, but also I won last time because one of our other participants uh, we were naming Ryder Cuppers actually, and okay. one of our participants said uh, named Steve Flesh, which was not good. And uh, I mean, <laughs> That's really we, were, we were only like, what, 10 each into it? Right? Yeah, we do it stump the Schwab style, Shane. So you go back. So you and just keep, keep naming. Right. I yeah, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, boy. And so so I, do I have to play this? Wow. OK. No, yeah. No, no. What, what, are, what are we doing here? No, this is this. This will go to Kyle. But this is a real question, Shane, from okay. Apocalypse Sports Trivia. I went back in my history and I found a question that I can tee up for Kyle here. And I, I, I hope he gets this one. I got this one right. Kyle should get this one right. At the 2021 Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits, Sergio Garcia and John Rahm went 3-0 and as partners in the latest iteration of the, quote, Spanish Armada that has flourished at the Ryder Cup since the start of the European era. The best example of the Armada, and indeed the most successful pair in Ryder Cup history, featured two golfers who won 12 points from 15 matches as a pair. Name both of them. Uh, Sevi and Jose Maria Olathebel. That was too easy, Shane. Yeah, too easy. I'm, I'm, lo- I'm looking. That's I'm looking awful. to. Well, you got to remember, Kyle. These are not all golf people, so the the answer percentage on that would have been something like probably 35, 40 percent, right? Okay. Among among yeah. So I'm looking through my golf questions now, and I, I honestly do not think that you would miss any of them. However, would you like me to try to stump you with one more? Sure. I love okay. It. Um. Oh, here we go. This is kind of a weird one. So maybe. Maybe 
1938, Ralph Guldahl was the last man to win a U.S. Open while wearing what piece of attire? (laughs) (laughs) This Uh, is the only one that could maybe get you. That's a good one. That is a good one. He he was... (laughs) Oh, a tie. You're absolutely right. Even even the stumper couldn't get you. Yep, too good. Too, too good. Yeah, you did. You got it. Um, That's an apocalypse sports trivia. Now, Shane, the book, the cup they couldn't lose. Uh, I got mine off Amazon, but I assume this is available like basically everywhere, right? Yeah, everywhere you get books, definitely. I heard you were big in indie bookstores. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, are we allowed to talk about other podcasts on sure, here? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, that was uh, on the shotgun start. I, I said, like, you know, you can get it at your indie bookstores. And Andy was like, "Can you?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, yeah, actually, I don't know. Like, if you do want to buy this book, the cup they couldn't lose. Like, going to the vintage indie store in Portland, Oregon, may not be like the absolute best place. Um, but the internet, the internet's always good." Yeah, it's it's a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Shane is a great writer and a great reporter. And I think that that, you know, the Ryder Cup is has become his wheelhouse in a lot of ways. So it was I read it in like three days. It's fantastic. Everybody should get it. Rick, I think you're in the middle of it, maybe. Yes. Uh, Kyle, you are not only you are quoted on the back of this thing. Oh, you're, okay. you're like you're from like, from slaying the tiger. Yeah. yeah, from slaying yeah. the tiger. Yep. Yeah. Look at that. That's pretty slick. Uh, yes, I'm about a third of the way through. I'm, I'm, I got it yesterday. I'm, I'm trucking through, but it's very, very good. And Shane, uh, always love the stuff that you put out. I even, um, I read the, uh, the, the bird conspiracy theory around Augusta. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was <laughs> the most important story I'd ever read in my entire life. So yeah, anything that you put on paper or on the internet, uh, it will have my attention. So really appreciate you coming on, and uh, thanks for writing the book. Yeah, this was really fun. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. At Shane Ryan here on Twitter. That's Kyle Porter at Kyle Porter CBS. You can find me at Rick Run. Good. This has been The First Cut. We'll catch you next time. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.